podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and today we have a another awesome guest, Dan Balkowski. Dan, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Kyle. Looking forward to our conversation. All right, yeah, me too. I'm I'm really looking forward to. It. I think this is going to be a great one. Dan is the founder of Product Tranquility, a, a consulting firm based in Austin, Texas. Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit? more about yourself and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I started my career on the engineering side, actually building products in the software world, been in the software world my entire life. As I progressed in my career down that path into engineering management, I found myself more and more interested in not only the products that we were building, but how do those products actually create value for customers and revenue for the business? Left the engineering path as I went to grad school, was lucky the place I went was I found out much later with a few places that actually had pricing courses, very strong marketing program, and actually got thrown into the pricing world immediately in my MBA internship, where I worked for a very successful Silicon Valley company. And they had a problem where they sold apps through four main go-to-market partners. And one of the main partners was sort of the low cost player in that space and demanded that all of their partners supplying them apps had a freemium version. So it was on the CEO's desk of, well, we have to do this for this one partner. Should we have freemium versions for all of our partner apps? Put that on my plate for the, the summer, among other things that I helped them work on. We did all the ins and outs of freemium. TLDR, I, I don't recommend freemium. I think it's generally a bad idea. We could touch on that later. But yeah, that was kind of my first uh, insight into the pricing world. And then went into the product management, product strategy world, building products across most, mostly, again, B2B, some marketplace businesses, and went off on my own about two, two and a half years ago now, which is crazy, and completely focused on you know, helping high-volume B2B CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm really excited to talk about uh, pricing and packaging because I think this is a fascinating topic. And we were talking a little bit before we started that I have been... Uh, thinking a lot about this lately uh, because I have been probably neck deep in it for a little while uh, in some of the work that I've been doing uh, for for our company. But before we get in that, you, you mentioned in your bio that uh, you know before uh, you got started on a bunch of this that you you took a sabbatical and took a solo trip around the world visiting twenty one countries. I just I, I've got to dip into that just a little bit. You know how how was your your trip around the world? And you know, where were some of the countries that you visited? What was the most interesting part of it? It was a transformational experience. It was a thing that had been on the bucket list for a while. I had, if anyone is interested of how you go and do a year and a half, uh, I didn't start with a year and a half. I did with <laughs> start with you know two week trips, three week yeah. trips, three month trips, and then eventually I did the year and a half. Highly inspired by Tim Ferriss and his book Four Hour Work Week. Figured, you know, at some point. In the future, I'm going to be old and retired. And that's the narrative we've all been given is that that's when you get to go enjoy your life. But at that point, are you really going to go on the kinds of crazy adventures you would go in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s? So decided to take that bull by the horns. I went all around the world, as you mentioned. I think actually the most transformational experience of that is during that time, I actually completed two 10-day silent meditation retreats, which ended up with my company name, Product Tranquility. My goal is to give a little bit more tranquility into the world of product. It can be a very hectic, stressful place to be as a, a leader as a, in a product uh, company. And so my goal is to help spread some of that tranquility to uh, other you know, product and product marketing leaders through my work. But that was really a journey to the inside. Everyone gets very excited about you know, the Instagram photos, et cetera, but <laughs> that was the most uh, transformational part. I, I would say in terms of favorite places, too many to, to list, but I definitely highly recommend if you haven't, the West coast of Norway is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, New Zealand obviously gets a lot of credit uh, and, and deservingly. So Th- those are probably two of the, the best places I went to. Okay. No, those are, those are definitely on the list. We, um, we keep looking at Norway as one of the places that we want to visit in the not too distant future. Like, uh, just looking at pictures of it and, and the places to visit, it looks 
absolutely gorgeous. So it's good to hear that's on the list. And obviously New Zealand, another one of those amazing places, but, uh, sounds incredible. And that kind of, uh, so you, you kind of touched on, you know, where, where the name of your business come, came from and in, in your background, a little bit of what led you to, you know, some of the pricing, but, uh, you know, as we kind of dive into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about why focus so much on pricing and pricing strategy. You know, what, what led you to, you know, start a business based solely on product tranquility, like you said, but on pricing and pricing strategy. I found a lot of technology companies have a real challenge with pricing and pricing and packaging as a whole. It's not something that's really formally taught. I mentioned before in grad school, I took what pricing classes were available. And even those classes work in certain contexts, but not in others. So for example, I took a class on uh, pricing promotion and retailer behavior. So if I was pricing Minute Maid orange juice in the grocery store, how can I use market data to build out demand curves and understand the effects of running promotions or coupons or price changes? How does that affect my pricing versus other businesses? When you get into the world of software, a lot of those principles are difficult or impossible to apply. It's very different dynamics in the market. You might think about even if you're in the hotel or airline industry, they have a whole area called yield or revenue management, where obviously uh, as soon as a plane takes off, any unsold seats can never be sold forever, right? The, the inventory expires. And so there's pricing disciplines in that industry, but software, there, no one really had come up with a way to look at this in a holistic fashion. And through strange idiosyncrasies of my background, I'd had experience obviously with this internship experience that I mentioned. And then as a product manager, and we had a very good product marketing team, which product marketing, we might get into this later, is generally where I advise companies to stick the pricing responsibility in companies. But those folks didn't have pricing backgrounds either. So there was a lot of these products that I was managing where everyone kind of looked around the tables, like who's <laughs> going to do this and end up being me. So I ended up having quite a bit of experience doing it just for the products that I was managing uh, in these companies. And then when I went off on my own, it was one of you know several things I thought I could offer the market. And just like any entrepreneur, you listen to where the challenges are and ultimately realized that that was the area of greatest challenge that companies were struggling with just because they don't have clear owners, they don't have clear processes. The rest is history. Yeah. You touched on a couple points that I want to dive into a little bit more. At a high level, uh, what are companies getting wrong most often about pricing? I mean, you, you mentioned a couple of things earlier. I mean, you mentioned using wrong models, you know, maybe freemium being one. Uh, you mentioned, you know, not having a process or not having ownership. Like what, what do you see most frequently that, that companies are getting wrong uh, in trying to do pricing? When it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. Most clients, my first conversation with them, everyone's very interested in the answer of, we've got this product. Is it $10 a seat? Is it $25 a seat? Is it $100 a seat? Those are interesting questions, but that's the very tail end of the process. And the price level, in fact, is the easiest to change. In a B2B market, you often have discounting and salespeople. So it's very fuzzy on a deal-to-deal -deal basis that that is actually the determining factor. But most clients don't really understand who they're targeting, the customer segments, their ideal customer profile that they're going after, and then how you charge. That's the entire, when we say pricing and packaging, it's the entire packaging mm -hmm. aspect. And they just don't really... Under, whether whether it's knowledge and they don't really know how to parse what's involved in that, or it's just less enticing to think about than the actual price level, they tend to ignore those aspects. You mentioned price level being you know one of the the last things that matter, and some of the more important things being who and how you're doing it. So how do you go about you know the right getting the right segmentation or you know getting the right uh, packaging for for some of the the pricing strategy that you're trying to put together. That's a great question. There's a four part model that I use that starts with understanding your customer segments. That's step one. All of your customers are not homogeneous. They have different needs, different desires. Those cause them to 
value your product differently. Oftentimes in the pricing world, we all pricing conversations turn into value conversations. So understanding what are the different value drivers that different customer segments care about and how they rate rank or rate those value drivers will change how they value different products in the market. This what's you know, when we go to the grocery store, this is why we have 40 different types of ketchup that we can get. <laughs> right. And we think it's complicated in the software world, but you go to you know, any consumer packaged goods aisle in your grocery store and you've got an overwhelming number of choices. Yep. This is because different customers will gravitate to different value propositions. So segments is number one, understanding that different segments will have different values. That's part two. And then three, understanding the different competitive alternatives that those segments are encountering or are considering or currently using on a daily basis. The value and competition are important because where pricing power really comes into play is understanding what your differentiated value is versus competitive alternatives. If I'm selling lemonade, for example, and I'm trying to sell it for $10 a cup, but there's a guy across the street who's selling it for $5 a cup, unless I've got, unless my lemonade has vitamins or something that I could say differentiates it, the market price is set at $5 by the guy across the street. So really understanding what does the value provide and then what is the differentiated value versus the competitive set that you're going after. So if you think of those three items, the segments, the value and competition, those you think of as your research inputs that then filter into your overall strategy. And that's where it all sort of comes together, understanding who, given all the segments that exist in the market, who are we most capable of serving? What is the differentiated value that we provide? How do we do that better than our competition? And that really is the kind of core of the strategic part of the pricing exercise is understanding that targeting positioning and then finally setting your pricing strategy around that. Right. That, that's really fascinating. When you are talking with companies and you know whoever else about their pricing strategy, do you really narrow in on uh, you know a specific segment or specific group of customers initially, or you know does it kind of depend on the company and 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 the product? Uh, I mean, do you try and get really specific in in some of these cases and say you know we we really need to target what we're trying to do here uh, by segment or are there other kind of strategies that that determine some of the pricing and packaging that could be more important in in determining your overall pricing strategy at the end you need to get to a set of segments that you're going to target at the beginning of like a segmentation process what you want to do if i use a military analogy imagine i'm a general and i have a map i want to understand what are all the potential hills i could have my troops take this is the idea behind an overall segmentation study is there's you know, some broad market, there's some broad terrain, but then we want to understand what are the advantages, disadvantages, costs, benefits to taking any particular hill. So having that expansive look first, understanding, hey, what are the things that differentiate different buyer groups in our market? And then once we have that information, we can bring that back into the business to say, okay, given that, and also given the competition, the other generals that are also trying to take those hills, where are we best suited to play and win? That becomes incredibly important because if you don't have that conversation up front, when you get to things like price level or the bundles you're going to offer, when I talk about bundles or offer configurations, these are part of the packaging. Often in the B2B SaaS world, you might think of like good, better, best is often a way you do it. So at a very high level, for example, you might have SMB, mid-market enterprise customers. You should then have bundles or configurations that speak to each of those individual segments, right? But if we if we go into this exercise and we don't think about our segments up front and who are we trying to map to, you try to have that conversation and it just it goes off the rails very quickly because all of a sudden no one is clear about which customer group you're actually talking about. And so trying to have a dialogue building out these complex sets of uh, feature bundles becomes impossible to navigate. So you really need to have that as a foundation for those kind of conversations and those decisions. Yeah. Let's, uh, you, you've, you've touched on a number of just awesome points. I want, I want to, I want to dive into this last one. Cause I, I think that's really, really interesting because I feel like probably some of my own experience, uh, and I alluded to this, like we've been, and I've been just neck deep in a lot of packaging and pricing and how do we rethink a lot of this? 
for, for a little while. And, you know, part of that is obviously the packaging discussion. Like how do we package some of the, the features and the bundles and, and all of these things together in a meaningful way? And you touched on something there that is, you know, very much around what probably a lot of SaaS companies are, are thinking about is, you know, what should packages look like? And in some cases, it feels like there isn't that thought process. And, and you know, maybe I'm just speaking from, from some of my observation or own experience, but there's not the thought process of what is the right segmentation for these bundles. And it's much more like, what's the minimum, what's the like the mid, and then what's like the, you know, and then everything as opposed to like, what are the right things to put in each of these packages? Can, has that been some of your experience? And then given that, what is the right way to create packages? Is it, is it in fact like, Hey, we've got a stripped down version. We've got like the mid level version and then we've got the everything version or, or is there a better way to think about packaging? I want to be precise in the way I talk about packaging and I'm happy to, to talk yeah. about your question, but I want to make sure that your listeners understand the nuances of packaging. So again, we're talking about pricing and packaging. So what is yeah. packaging in the sense of a B2B SaaS product? It, I view it as four different components. That's your price metric. So it's the unit of value that you charge customers for. So maybe that's by per API call, per you know, database transaction, per seat. You know, if you go to McDonald's, your price metric is per hamburger, or you go to a night at an Airbnb is your price metric uh, is, is, is a single night. There's a monetization model or pricing model, sometimes also referred to as a business model. So this would be, are you charging people on a one-time transaction for a perpetual license? Are you charging them on a subscription basis? Is it pay-as-you-go or utility billing? Then the third item would be what I call offer configurations or, or bundles. So this would be the sort of good, better, best thing that you alluded to. So I specifically call that as offer configuration or bundles. And then finally would be the price fences. So price fence is the idea that I could charge different customers, different prices for the same product. You run into this all the time. Say you go to a Friday movie at noon, you're going to pay different than if you go at 8 p.m., right? That, in that case, it's a time-based price fence. Or if you ride the bus, I get on the bus, I pay full fare, but if a senior citizen or a student gets on, they have a discount, right? So that'd be an identity-based price fence. And then there'd be the concept of a volume-based price fence, which is usually what you see most often in B2B SaaS, which is if I go and buy a piece of software and I, I buy a license for 10 seats, let's say, the price per unit I'm paying is going to be different than someone who comes in and buys a thousand seats. So those are the four different components of, of packaging. And I think it really helps to differentiate those because if we just try to talk about it all together. Again, like if we didn't talk about segments up front and then we try to figure out these conversations, you could have very distinct conversations about each of those uh, and it really helps smooth the conversation along. Yeah, I think that's that's really, really an important point. So when, when we're talking about packaging, how do we, as a company, so stepping back to what should my packaging strategy look like? Uh, you know, should we be, doing one or more of these different types of things like what are some of the considerations that go into that and and how should we be either evaluating that or reevaluating that as a business yeah so good packaging should be simple so and when it's simple it increases if you think about like offer configurations or bundles i think one company that really does this well is linkedin so linkedin doesn't do the standard smb mid-market enterprise They've actually broken it down directly in like customer personas or segments like we were talking before, where you've got LinkedIn recruiter, LinkedIn sales navigator, LinkedIn business premium, LinkedIn job seeker. Each of those distinct customer segments are looking for very different needs from their interaction with LinkedIn and LinkedIn's built specific offerings for each of those groups. This increases customers' ability to self-select into an offering, which increases this velocity of every sales opportunity. Not only does it make it easier on the customer, but if you're in a B2B context, it helps sales speed, spend less time on a deal. So it increases a business's uh, or reduces a business's customer acquisition costs, which is incredibly important. It can also 
help or hinder competitive comparison or differentiation, depending upon what you want to get out of the exercise. Sometimes it might help to mask uh, differences between your competitor. If you maybe are competing against a, a much stronger competitor uh, or you're trying to avoid getting it sucked into a price war, creating some differentiation in your offerings can help, you know, customers from comparison shopping. But if you have an offer that's you could directly compare to a competitor, but you've got some underlying cost advantage, sustainable cost advantage, perhaps you you go head to head and just make the direct comparison readily available for customers to like, oh yeah, like we're exactly the same, but we're 50% less the price, but you've got some, some competitive cost advantage that you can maintain that allows you to maintain that. The packaging also helps to communicate the value proposition of the product and justify your price. When you're thinking about things like price metrics, a good price metric aligns to the value that you deliver to customers. HubSpot, I think, is a good example where I think HubSpot, they may have changed it recently, but last time I looked, they charge you by the number of contacts in your marketing database. Mm -hmm. So if you're buying HubSpot as a CMO, you're happy Maybe not happy, but at least you understand why you're paying more because HubSpot's actually doing its job by getting you more contacts. And so then your price goes up, but also your revenue of your company should be going up. So it's directly aligned to the value. And then that makes it much easier for your marketing organization, your sales organization, your customer success organization to discuss the value, justify the price that you're trying to charge. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah. That, I think those are some really great examples as well on the packaging and, and some of the value proposition of, of how to do it. Going back to some of the the pricing discussion that that we were having, we talked about the pricing. You, you mentioned earlier that, and I, I thought this was this was really really great that pricing is uh, a, a process. You said you said something like you know pricing should be a process or or it, it's an ongoing process. How do we make pricing? And even you know as we were just discussing this idea of packaging a process within the organization because oftentimes it feels like it may be a you know we've we've set the pricing or you know it's we we've set the packaging and now it's done and and we're just moving forward but that may not be the best way to go about it and frankly uh it it feels like it's something that should be revisited more frequently than it is so what has been your experience in revisiting pricing and packaging? And then how do we make that more of an ongoing process within a, a business or an organization? It's a great question. I think it was, was it either Deming or Drucker? I, I never remember who it was, but I think he said, if you can't describe what you're doing as a process, you don't know what you're doing. And if you think about almost every aspect of a business can be described as a process, right? I have a set of inputs and I have some output. And somewhere in between there is a process to transform those inputs to outputs. And whether that's your, your marketing campaigns, your engineering into your product, your customer support cues, everything is a process. So if we think about pricing, pricing and packaging as being an output, we should then have a process and it's defined that we know what we're doing there. I don't see most companies treat it that way. There's a few different, few different aspects here. One is I would say, Anytime you're significantly changing your value or your value proposition has changed, you should be looking at revisiting your pricing. Companies are constantly improving their products. They have product managers and engineering teams doing amazing work every day to increase their value proposition, but yet CEOs feel totally comfortable that the price I set five years ago still maps to the price I have today. Now, there isn't a magic number for specifies how often you should change your pricing. It generally makes sense, I would say, to revisit at least once a year. Again, it's going to depend upon the dynamism in your particular market. I think most B2B SaaS companies are in pretty dynamic markets, so I feel like a year is is pretty reasonable. Where I usually see different triggers for clients that come to me, it's are they releasing significant new functionality that could potentially be a, a net new product or an add-on? Are they trying to serve a different target customer segment. And that customer segment, as we talked about earlier, may have different ways of valuing their product than what they've traditionally had. Had they acquired another company and now they need to rationalize their pricing across an entire product portfolio? Or are they, as we saw you know, over the last decade, almost everyone changed the pricing model 
from perpetual on, on-premises software to a subscription. Or now there's a lot of noise in the market about your pay-as-you-go models. And those all have far-reaching downstream impacts for how you need to build, maintain, establish, and maintain the relationship with your customers, et cetera. So those are some of the, the different triggers. And so I would say that, well, I'll just stop there and I can <laughs> kind of dig in wherever you want. I, I think those are those are really meaningful points of inflection and can be happening. I feel like can be happening fairly frequently, which kind of brings, uh, brings us to the, the next question. We alluded to this a little bit earlier on who owns some of these, these pricing discussions. Um, you know, we, we mentioned, you know, product managers and product development teams are frequently releasing uh, new new features and new functionality. And, and, you know, hopefully in probably larger organizations, we have product marketing teams who are coordinating between, you know, the product and the marketing and things like that. So within an organization, and this will probably depend on a lot of things, but who should own these discussions and who should help drive some of these pricing changes or at least pricing evaluations forward? It's a great question, Kyle. In early stage companies, the founders almost always own pricing. There's usually no one else to do it. So of course it falls to them. I would also say in early stage companies, probably pricing is not the most important lever for you. So make sure you're charging something. Don't just give your product away for free charge something. Uh, you know, we have two different centers in our brain. One is we receive value, which is a pleasure <laughs> part of our brain, but then price is the pain. It hits our, our pain centers. They've done actually uh, neurological research under MRIs. Uh, pricing actually activates pain centers. So you want to make sure that your value price ratio is matched. And if you're charging free, you're not getting that signal from the market. And so it just gives you bad uh, data that you're on the right track. In larger established companies, I believe PMM or product marketing should own pricing. Uh, ultimately, I think no matter what scale you're at, CEOs are still involved in pricing decisions. It has such a large impact not only on the company's financials, but across all the stakeholders that you know, they are still going to hold a lot of times a veto authority. I don't often see like professional full-time pricing people or pricing teams in companies until you're probably north of like 200 million in revenue. Like all parts of the business are stakeholders in pricing, as I mentioned. And I think you do need to have an apps, an owner, and you do need to have a defined process that, you know, even if that person is the head of the pricing, you know, internal pricing committee, right. That they have a process that can, help them you know, understand, okay, we're going to take a look at, it. this is the process that we're going to go through. Because otherwise a lack of apparent authority, it just causes inevitable arguments and impede the whole process. It's important, uncomfortable, and that goes around the entire executive table. And so if you don't have an owner, it will just get avoided or ignored. I do not believe that sales should own pricing. I don't think that they're quarterly sales incentives aren't aligned to long-term company profitability. And I, I believe that's ultimately the goal of a pricing exercise is to maximize long-term company profitability, but they are essential stakeholders and critical inputs to the pricing process. And, you know, any sales team is having you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of conversations with prospects. Right? So they're, they, they, you know, they're on the front lines of talking about price. So you want to make sure you include them in the process, but I don't believe like VPs of sales or CRO should own the pricing. Yeah, I to- totally agree with with all of that. Who are other, who have you found are other key stakeholders in in some of those pricing discussions? So, you know, we've mentioned product marketing, which uh, I, is absolutely key. You know, product management and, and product development, sales. Are there other key stakeholders, um, you know, the executive team as well, in helping to drive some of these forward or at least owning it so that we can make some of these pricing changes or or have the pricing evaluation in order to make it happen? Because often it feels like, you know, you can, you may not have any single owner like you mentioned, and you get into this, like, yes, you know, we understand 
that we need to change pricing or we need to reevaluate this. And you can get stymied because, you know, who who owns that? And, and there may be no apparent person or you may not feel like you can do it because you don't have all of the right people or you don't know that you have all the right people yet. Is there anybody who can kind of backdoor veto if you don't have them involved that you've seen? Or And once you get them all involved, who have you found typically, you know, if you don't have product marketing can be the best person or or people to stand up and, and own that until you can get like the right organization in place? I think it's a great question. I want to start with talking about, you know, anytime you're touching pricing, one of the first things I do with clients is trying to get everyone on the same page for what are you trying to achieve with your pricing? What is the goal? Is it revenue? Is it profit? Is it margin? Is it market share? If you go around the executive table, depending upon your position, you may have a different goal. And I don't know if you've ever (laughs) tried to optimize a system, but if everyone's trying to optimize to a different goal, (laughs) nobody's going to hit any of them. You know, and you, you can't, you know, unless you have marginal costs of zero, you can't maximize revenue and profit simultaneously. It's just, it's, there's two different price points there, you know, assuming you could get exactly the accurate data to give you the optimal. So you need to get all of those stakeholders together to first figure out what is the goal? Is the management team aligned with those goals? So if I just go, you know, we've talked about sales. I think product mm-hmm. is close to the customer, close to the value proposition, they definitely are a key stakeholder. You know, product marketing. You know, potentially those both roll up to either CMO or, or chief product officer. The marketing in general. So if you think about like your your demand gen or your brand side of your marketing, I think those are key stakeholders because if we didn't really talk about uh, price positioning, but you know, if I'm a low cost retailer, let's say like Aldi or Costco, the price is part of my promotion. It's part of the value proposition I put into my ads. Versus if I'm you know, Rolex or Bugatti, right? It's, I, I don't, I, we don't talk about price. Everyone knows we're expensive, and but we're, we're having a very different conversation. So those stakeholders are very important. Finance, incredibly important. Finance wants to make sure you don't run out of, we don't run out of money. <laughs> we're, we're net profitable, or at least we've, we're managing our burn rate so that we know when we're going to run out of cash. They resp- usually have margin responsibility, so they have a, a stake in, in that. And then customer success. So if you're in a B2B SaaS world, the rise of customer success is said, you know, actually it's, we don't just care that, you know, in a perpetual license business, you could sell a product, say customer, good luck. I don't really care if you ever get that piece of software installed. Not saying anyone did that explicitly, but a lot of companies acted that way. As soon as the move to subscription happened, people realized like, oh, if we we're going to come up for renewal, we need to make sure that people are actually engaged with the software. They're getting value out of it. And then, you know, I think uh, Snowflake just released their uh, results uh, yesterday, last night. They had 180% net dollar retention, which is insane. I think it's maybe the best of any public company I've ever seen. Yeah. And so companies realize that, hey, if we want people to expand, if that's going to be one, a huge revenue driver and profit driver for us because getting more money out of your existing customer base is way more cost effective than acquiring net new customers. But also we have to have a pricing and packaging system that aligns with how those existing customers are experiencing value because it's very different on the customer success conversation than the sales conversation. Sales conversation, you could paint futures of how valuable this would be. The customer success rep comes in year one or year three for a renewal the customer knows the product. They know the value they're getting out of it. And it has to be very apparent to them of why they're going to be paying 180% more than they did last year. <laughs> yeah. So those stakeholders are all very important to bring into the conversation. Again, when I talk about you know, making sure you have an owner, but then also potentially you want a pricing committee because all of those people have very legitimate concerns and goals that they're trying to achieve, You know, hopefully in service of the same overall overall goal for the company. Yeah. No, that that's really helpful. And I think super important because, you know, one of the, the, this hasn't necessarily happened to me with, uh, with pricing, but it's probably happened to most product people at some point where if you, if you don't get the right stakeholders involved, you can end up uh, torpedoing yourself down the road in, you know, not having the right level of buy-in and and all of that sort of stuff. So like making sure everybody is like pushing in the same direction and understands like what your goals are and what you're trying to do so that a little bit down the road, somebody, you know, the, the head of marketing doesn't come in and, and say, Hey, this is totally misaligned with what we're trying to do. And now we have to 
rethink everything because that that's not what you want to do with with your product or obviously with your pricing and packaging strategy. So super interesting. I wanted to you you brought up a little bit earlier and you were talking about the the freemium. And I think this is really interesting because you know you you mentioned the pleasure center of your brain and the and the pain center. And with freemium, you're getting all the pleasure and and none of the pain. And so as a business, you're not getting any signal from that that you know, hey, what level of value are, are we providing? Now, there are a lot of freemium products out there, but you, I mean, you've you've mentioned that freemium is is not a strategy you would recommend as far as a, a pricing strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I, I lump freemium into the pricing model or monetization model category of the packaging framework. Mm-hmm. I would say almost any argument for freemium could better be served by a 14 to 30 day free trial. So both freemium and free trial rely on what economists call the concept of software as an experience good, which means my perception of the value of the product changes as I use it. I've got one impression from looking at the website, watching a video, getting a demo, reading a white paper, meeting a person at a trade show, but I get an entirely different sense of the value of the product when I'm actually using it. Mm-hmm. So I think from that perspective, 14 to 30 day trial accomplishes that. Freemium has a bunch of problems. It causes problems uh, internally. It's number one, it's challenging to move customers from free. You run into what is called the penny gap, which is $0 to one cent is an infinite increase in price. Mm-hmm. So you might as well be starting your entire go-to-market motion over again to move people from free. It's very difficult. It potentially is a signaling problem. We tend to use price as indicators of quality. If I'm using something for free, maybe subconsciously, I don't value the product as much because I'm using it for free. And as a marketer, I almost never want that to be the case. I don't want people to to devalue my product because they're not, because I I did this thing like they're not paying for it. One of the major issues is anyone who's tried to acquire customers, growth marketing or demand acquisition specialists, know how hard it is to get new customers. It's just a brutal out there. And if your motion is, oh, we've got this pool of free users, this looks like a very attractive target to make, you know, instead of going out and running Facebook or Google ads or SEO or trade shows. We just got all these people using the product for free. The problem is that's an illusion. Best in class freemium companies convert one to 3% of those free users into customers, which means you need a massive market, like potentially millions of customers. I believe this is the reason that Zoom, I haven't talked to Zoom directly, but I believe this is the reason that Zoom has a free version because their market is literally everyone on the planet, especially when COVID hit. So they've got you know billions of potential customers. And so in that case, you might like, okay, freemium. For most B2B SaaS companies, they do not have a market, TAM, that is anywhere near the uh, that of, of Zoom. Okay. And then since most of those customers won't convert, you're going to spend a huge amount of energy trying to convert people who will never convert. So it's this illusion. You're just going to pour money down this leaky bucket that you're never going to get back. I think the other problem is it creates this internal uh, momentum tax on every single feature you build. I've been a part of these conversations. They're not fun. So, hey, we're building this new feature. All right. How much of it is going to be on the freemium side and how much is it going to be on the freemium side or not? And so now this is not something that shows up on the balance sheet or the income statement for executives, but you're just slowed down. I don't know any CEO who's happy about their engineering team's progress. And so now you've just done this. You just put a, you've literally just put a handbrake on your engineering team because now every time the product managers have to go through this like decision process of is this on the free or the paid side? And these conversations aren't easy. Like, Oh, should we use allow people to use it for an hour a day for free or for thirty hours a month? And what seems like net net the same thing. You, I, I've been in companies where you know you might lose three weeks of executive meetings just trying to come to a, a resolution on something as simple as the difference between that. Um, I think the other argument that is made is it improves your customer acquisition costs. So there's some data that folks have presented that says that. Oh, people who do this are are more efficient. The problem is, I think at this point, you're just playing games with the income statement. The customer acquisition cost is, for those who don't know, is sales and marketing expense divided by the number of customers you acquired. 
What's not in that numerator is your engineering costs. But now you've turned engineering into marketing expense. I've never seen anyone say, oh, now we've also carved out X percent of our engineering costs into a marketing expense. All I see is the, oh, it looks like our customer acquisition costs went down. So I think it's just playing games with the income statement. I don't think it's it's very uh, fruitful there. I think there are a couple of viable opportunities. I mentioned Zoom before. I think if your product, for example, doesn't show value in a 14 to 30 day free trial, uh, some of these examples might be like developer focused products where if I'm a developer hooking into an API, I might need to use that in uh, staging or Mm -hmm. a development environment for weeks or months before that actually ever ships to prod. And so I think a lot of the developer focused tools have a uh, claim there because then it's like, oh, at least people can use it in, in dev or staging, but it's not, you know, the tier isn't good enough to actually be used in a production environment. Or if you've got something like a built-in community. So I don't view uh, the social networks, for example, like Facebook is not pure freemium. It's actually a multi-sided marketplace, which is a different monetization model entirely because it adds supported. So you're free. But if you think about like Slack, Slack has a free version because there's no, Slack is useless if, you know, I show up and there's no one else on Slack. So in those cases, I need to have a massive, it's the same problem. It's a chicken and the egg marketplace problem that, uh, you know, the social networks deal with. So there are a couple of, of cases, corner cases, I would say, where people can make arguments, but as a blanket, it's like 14, 30 day free trial and just stop, please stop talking about freemium. <laughs> no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. All of that. And I'll echo the decision process behind pretty much everything and where it goes in a product. It is not simple at all. So what goes into a freemium, uh, a free version, what, what goes into the paid, what goes into each tier, like those are decisions that are agonized over for long periods of time. And it, they are not easy. And in most cases, so if, if you're doing it right, if, Companies are doing them right. They take a long time and a lot of effort to try and figure out where each of those things go. I wanted to ask too, you know, since we were talking about, you know, the free free version and freemium and pricing transparency, you know, as you're putting your, your pricing models together, uh, how transparent uh, should you be about pricing and, and, and what you're charging to customers? Because, you know, there's, we've talked a lot about the different packages and different pricing models and strategies, you know, how, how much of this should you put forward, you know, onto your website? How much of it should be uh, more individualized uh, between like sales and, and different strategies that, that companies undertake? It's a great question, Kyle. And I, data on this is a little bit hard to come by, but I think about from numbers I've seen anywhere between 50 and 75% of B2B SaaS companies have public pricing and packaging. So you're, you're in good company if you want to do public pricing and packaging. It tends to be the majority of folks, whether somewhere in that number. I think there's three different models that companies use, and those are different depending upon the situation that you're in. So if we think about this concept of pricing and packaging, so I could have public pricing and packaging, I could have no public pricing or packaging, or I could have a hybrid where I have maybe a public display of packages. Like I show my good, better, best, but I don't show prices. Mm -hmm. So those would be like three models. And each of them are different and have different benefits depending upon the situation that you're in. So when should you show public pricing and packaging? If you have standardized packaging, like a good, better, best, or LinkedIn with, you know, LinkedIn recruiter, sales navigator, et cetera, you have horizontal products with a huge market and competition. So I think a good example of that, another is the the task project management space. So the Trellos, the Monday.coms, the Saunas, uh, et cetera, you're very hard to differentiate, but they, you know, everyone from your personal assistant to a product manager to a person in a doctor's office could potentially use a, a Trello, for example, right? And so uh, having those large uh, homogenous markets and with, with competition that also has public pricing and packaging, or if you're... It also maybe in a like a high volume and velocity or a product led growth model. So those type of, of situations where you wouldn't want to show public pricing and packaging would be if you had, for example, an enterprise sales motion, complex packaging. I've talked to uh, prospects and clients where they've got 45 page price lists. You know, even if they wanted to put that in the website, <laughs> good luck if you're a customer trying to figure that out. So it requires a salesperson to walk them through. 
you know, and also if there's potentially high difference in willingness to pay between your customer segments, or you have a very small addressable market. If my entire addressable market is 50 or a hundred companies, I'm probably not going to be publishing my pricing on my website. Yeah. And then, you know, then you have the hybrid one where, you know, potentially I'm displaying uh, my public packaging, but not price levels. You know, if you've got, again, standardized packaging, like a good, better, best, uh, but again, maybe you have also, there's a high difference of willingness to pay between customer segments or a small addressable market. So you might want to hide the pricing. And there's, there's, those are the three, you know, high level archetypes that I, that I see. There's even variations where people will have public pricing packaging across the board, but then maybe like their last one is enterprise. Then you see the enterprise call us. Uh, so there's also sort of variations yeah. there that people will get into as well. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Last question for me around kind of pricing and packaging. What, generally speaking, do you see any future trends or, or, or future ways of doing things that are, are starting to come out or, you know, that may start uh, becoming more and more popular as far as pricing and packaging, whether in, in software or just generally that, you know, may start to change the way that we do things or, or that are, are coming down the pike, uh, from, from your experience or from what you're seeing companies starting to do? Well, I think I'm supposed to answer web three here or, or, or crypto. So it's one of those answers. No, I, I, I think that in the pricing world, you know, the big push, you know, I'm trying to uh, do is, is having people get more concentrated on you know, what is the value you're delivering, uh, aligning your pricing around that and the segments you're trying to do. I think where I've seen several failed attempts and several sort of ongoing attempts, I think folks are trying to use AI machine learning uh, systems to try to optimize pricing uh, via, you know, changes to the website or et cetera. I haven't seen those work and I'm doubtful that they will. There's there's several reasons. I, I don't recommend folks, especially in a B2B market, A-B test their, their pricing uh, on their website. One, you're probably not going to get enough traffic to your pricing page to get statistical significance. Two, anytime you get a sales team involved or you know, in a, in a business context, right? I might have the, the champion and then the buyer so I've got I've got multiple people on each side of the transaction who need to understand what the price what prices have been quoted. I can't imagine a poor sales guy picking up the phone when marketing has been A/B testing the price pricing on the website, having no idea what the customer saw, right? Or, or they, they go one day and they see a different price and it's like different than what the sales guy told them the day before. All of those just seem like disasters. So I, I've seen several attempts to try that in, in my world, but I, I don't anticipate that they'll be very successful. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Dan, I guess, is there any any final thoughts from you on pricing or packaging uh, that that you've seen or, or that you'd like to share? You know, when thinking about pricing, as I mentioned before, understanding that price is merely how a buyer and a seller divide value in a transaction. So really understanding your customer segments, really understanding the value you provide. And then from there, you can have a very concrete discussion around the price that you're trying to charge. All that is, that's absolutely incredible. Um, Dan, this has been just an absolutely amazing, amazing discussion. And I I really appreciate it. I think you could probably pull out just all sorts of of pieces of amazing wisdom throughout this entire process. Uh, podcast. Where can people go to find out more about you and Product Tranquility? Yeah, I blog fairly regularly on my website at producttranquility.com, all one word. So trying to demystify this world of pricing for the broader masses. As, as I mentioned before, there's not a whole lot of consolidated training or, you know, courses or anything that you can really take. So trying to, you know, ease the path for folks as they come behind. And then I'm on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski. Always happy to connect with folks there. If you reach out, just let me know you heard on the podcast. Uh, so I make sure you're not a, a spammer. Uh, otherwise, uh, happy to connect with folks there. Okay. Awesome. All right, Dan, real last question. Then, you know, we, we, we like to end with a, a shout out or with shout outs and gripes. So uh, if there is anything that you have been using from like a product standpoint or reading or watching lately, you want to give a shout out to, we'll, we'll end it with a, a shout out or a gripe or things that you, you have used um, or just haven't liked recently. You can, you can use a gripe too. Yeah. So the other day, uh, so Showtime is just put out a new series called Super Pumped on uh, Uber's meteoric uh, rise and fall. So 
So I watched the first episode of that and it ties into our conversation because one of the major scenes in there is they come in and talk about the rider safety fee tacking on to, uh, to the Uber price. So I thought that was a fun tie-in of pop culture uh, and, and and the pricing world that, that came in. So I really enjoyed the episode. I don't, I, I never worked at Uber. I don't know if it's accurate to the, the culture or anything like that, but uh, it was highly entertaining. Very nice. Yeah. I'm going to have to, I've, I've seen the ads, so I'm going to have to check that one out. It looks, uh, it looks Joseph really Gordon-Levitt is amazing. So yes. Uh, yeah. Very, very true. All right, Dan, thanks again. Uh, this has been a great, great conversation. We'll put all the links in the show notes so uh, people can find out more about product tranquility and yourself there. And thanks again for, for everything and for a great discussion. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kyle. I had a good time. Hopefully it was valuable for your listeners. Yeah. I, I think it was incredible. So thank you, Dan. And thanks everyone for listening. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prod by design. That's prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter, Product Thinking, at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kyle Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.